This is David Suiza. Welcome to my podcast. My dear friend Aviva Kempner is in the house. Aviva, how are you? Very good. Thank you. So why are you here? I'll tell you why you're here. Because I've been meaning to have you on this podcast for a long time. I loved your movies. You did that famous movie on Hank Greenberg many years ago. That's when we met. I know you live in D.C. And you spent the last few years doing this incredible film that got this uh, review in the L.A. Times today on Mo Berg. And the thing that struck me the most is how did you, first of all, how did you ever end up being a filmmaker who, like, looks for Jewish heroes? Well, it's a combination of matters. First of all, um, I had been... I had three degrees, a psych degree, a master's in urban planning, and I had a law degree doing very well in law school. But sadly, my dad, who had made Aliyah, sadly, my father, who had made Aliyah to Israel, suddenly got very ill. And and instead of graduating from law school, I buried my father the day I was supposed to go to law school. I buried my father the day I was supposed to graduate from law school. Where was this? Um, 1976. New York? No, no, I, I was going to law school in Washington. It was at that time called Antioch School of Law. And my brother and I ran to Israel because that's where my dad was living. And after that, I came back very sad, uh, losing my father, of course. You were close with him? Yes, although he had, he had already moved three years earlier to Israel. My parents were divorced, so um, it was always, uh, but he was always very much a figure in our lives. Uh, taught me a lot about Judaism and being proud about being Jew- Jewish and also Jewish heroes. So ironically enough, my father never saw my films. So when it went to take the bar, I don't know, I, don't, I did very well in law school, but I do not do well on multiple choice questions. So I wound up flunking the bar twice, even though I was still in an immigration law firm. And I was looking for, and this was 40 years ago, what am I going to do in my life? And it turns out that I came home and I was looking at a book uh, called Image Before My Eyes, written by as a photo essay book about Jews between the wars, uh, put out by Evo, co-authored by Lucien Dobroszynski. And I just had this flash that I had to go make a film about Jews fighting Nazis. I always say it was like Elijah hit me in the head. And your father fought the Nazis in the American army. Yes, but he went was in the Pacific. He said he joined, mm. he was originally from Lithuania, to, but he went to the Pacific. But after the war, he was with the military government. And my mother, who was a Polish Jew, blonde and green-eyed, passed as a Polish Catholic within Germany, uh, working in a barrel fa- factory and was liberated. And my dad covered a story about my mother and my uncle being reunited because, sadly, their parents and sister died in Auschwitz. So you were craving stories from your family. You were, you were looking for the stories, right, in your family? Well, I think part of it was also my mother decided to protect her kids and did not grow up, did not bring us up hearing stories of the Holocaust. And also, we grew up in Detroit, and, you know, a lot of her closest friends were also survivors. They would talk Polish. And a lot um, of it was hidden from you. Yes. And, and I can see because I know friends who it was the contrary, where they heard too many stories and I think really affected them. Now, of course, we still knew we had no grandparents. We knew there was this horrible war. And it was actually Leon Uris and reading Exodus when I was 13, when I first read about Kitty and Dove, that I really learned about the Holocaust 
or in high school English class reading the wall and realizing the Jews were all going to end up, you know, uh, in, uh, in being um, when I read the wall and realized that the crisis was that the Jews were going to end up being exterminated. But it was really, I'll never forget, I'm sitting there in my college dorm in 60, I believe it was 69, and I'm watching the Academy Awards. I always grew up loving movies, going to movies, both with my mother, like watching them at home, old movies. You know, we just talked about how we love these old movies, especially Casablanca. Oh, we love Casablanca. Gone with we the wind. We were just wind. talking about, for all you listeners, about how we have not found one false note in that movie. Yes. Um, and all of a sudden, they announce who's going to win the Best Actor Award. That was 69. And Lee, Let me see I, if I can guess. Lee Marvin in Kapaloo yeah. beats Rod Steiger in The Pawnbroker. Uh-huh. And I started crying thinking, how can a drunk cowboy beat a Holocaust survivor? And I think these are all the kind of things that started formulating in my mind when years later I realized it's going to be hard for me to practice law without... Um, uh, having passed the bar. So I always thank the bar for flunking me. And I had this revelation 40 years this November, I've got to make a film about Jews fighting Nazis. And you did. Well, it's because the I had read... of Vilna? I had writ, read Mila 18, and I realized um, after that, starting doing research, that there was this stereotype that Jews hadn't fought back. But how could they? I mean, the French never fought back. The Poles fell. You know, we didn't have a nation. We didn't have an army. So I decided I was going to go make the film about I thought Warsaw. But before you go there, I want to just bring back something you said a few minutes ago, that uh, one of the reasons you flunked the bar is that uh, you don't do well with multiple choice questions. And I'm, I'm wondering if that connects to your love of stories because multiple choice is the opposite of storytelling. It's either mm-hmm. or. And filmmaking and storytelling is not either or. Oh, that's a good observation. But I always think it's been shared. It's faded that I did it. Um, I didn't direct Partisans of Vilna. Luckily, I found Joshua Letsky, who coincidentally had actually made the documentary based on image before my eyes. So it was, again, mm-hmm. another fateful uh connection. We made that film, and then I was in L.A. opening up Partisans of Vilna, you know, which tells the great story of the Vilna ghetto story in the woods and in the ghetto of trying to, you know, the first call of resistance when I heard Hank Greenberg die. Yeah, now that put you on the map. That's when you became nationally famous. The first movie was good. The second movie was everyone talked about it. Yeah. And what happened? Why, why did that film struck a nerve? Well, I think several things. One, I think it was a really good movie. I think, again, it's countering the stereotype of the nebbishy Jewish male. I always say my films counter stereotype and about Jews fighting isms. So here, instead of the nebbishy Jewish male that we often see with Woody Allen. This is a physical hero. A physical hero. It's it's what my dad always talked about to my brother and I, Hank Greenberg, almost making Brave Bruce record and not playing in 34, going to the shul instead of the stadium. I mean, who heard of that? In the he- at the height of domestic anti-Semitism where Ford is in Detroit, that's where he played, and where um, Coughlin is ranting, you know, his anti-Semitic racist mm-hmm. sermons. So, uh, I, as a matter of fact, I heard about Hank Greenberg so much on Yom Kippur, I thought he's part of Kol Nidra's service. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, the name is pretty obviously Jewish, and he was a he, beloved Jew. Yeah, and it just worked out. I mean, 
Of course, the irony is my father never saw that movie or any of my movies, and I was proud to have people like Walter Matthau or Senator and Congressman Levin, the Levin brothers, who grew up really loving Hank. And then I finished Hank Greenberg, and it took me any, many years because I'm sort of a meshuggan of the way I make movies. It's not investors. I have a 501c3, the Cheshla Foundation, named after my grandparents' last name who perished in Auschwitz, in tribute to them and my aunt. And it took many years to, to raise the money to make it. But what I did was start a Jewish film festival in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. after I had gone to the one in San Francisco and realized we got to have it there. And again, that was early. That was 29 years ago. And then I went to the Jewish Museum, and I saw this exhibit of Molly Jusen TV, and there's uh-huh. Gertrude Berg, a woman who wrote 10,000 scripts typed by her husband and was this positive, warm Jewish mother, somewhat like my mother was, but not sort of the negative, overbearing one we had seen. And what she faced in developing the first domestic sitcom was certainly sexism in the business. And sadly, later on, her husband was, her stage husband was blacklisted. So McCarthyism. So again, I could satisfy that desire of an underknown Jewish hero, but this respect to heroine, fighting an ism. And then I was on Martha's Vineyard, and I heard this wonderful lecture with David Saperstein, a rabbi friend of mine, with the civil rights leader Julian Bond, and I heard about Julius Rosenwald. Here, a hundred years ago, a Jewish philanthropist, the head of Sears, gave away $62 million. Incredible. And he started the greatest African-American organization. Well, he helped NAACP. But more importantly, with black communities, they built 5,000 schools because during Jim Crow time, they weren't being properly educated. I heard that he took all those uh, train from right the somebody told me like the trains that were abandoned after the civil war those train cars and they kind of uh, used them for some of the black colleges uh, Maybe it was i don't else. know that so much but okay. he definitely gave to the historical black colleges and to great uh, artisans like um god i'm having a senior moment okay. oh, and no, he also not. helped all these great uh black artisans uh that you know we so revere today um and again, it counters the stereotype that Jews are greedy and not giving, where we know in our community, Sadaka is very important. It must drive you nuts when, uh, you know, a Jew comes along and goes exactly in the opposite direction, like Madoff, which is obviously the right. most obvious name. How do you react to that? Yeah, well, I consider my Rosenwald film a direct... Um, Rebuttal. Rebuttal to Madoff. And also the fact that he committed himself to fighting racism, because I think there's a great history in the civil rights movement of Jews being involved with it, but it started decades earlier. And somehow it looks like those bonds have frayed in recent years between the the blacks and the Jews. Somebody once told me uh, that a black leader went to him and complained that we stopped being a minority. Well, I, I don't think that's true. I still think you see great involvement, both through Jewish organizations and synagogues, bonding, um, you know, over civil rights issues and other issues. It's I so, mean, I would, ho- I would hope that's still true. Yeah, I mean, this whole movement of tikkun olam and repairing the world is so prevalent now in Jewish circles, and yet, for some reason, we're seeing a rise in anti-Semitism. And sometimes, Aviv, I'm thinking, why would you want to hate the Jews? Mm-hmm. 
What I forgot to mention is he also supported black artisans at a very early age, like Gordon Parks. Jacob Lawrence's Great Migration Series was totally funded by Julius Rosenwald. So we're talking about the MacArthur um, grants way before, way before they became the MacArthur grant. And I was searching for someone new to do, and uh, a wonderful uh, friend of mine started talking to me. His name is Bill Levine. He lives in Phoenix. And he had been very excited about the Hank Greenberg film because he had grown up. He's an older than I, loving Hank Greenberg. And he had given a little bit to my, uh, both my Molly Goldberg film and my Rosenwald film. And one day we're talking and he said, Aviva, I think you should make a film on Sid Luckman, the Jewish football player. And I said, but Bill, I don't like football. Hmm. And he says, well, why don't you do um, Barney Ross, the boxer, Jewish boxer? And I said, well, I don't like boxing more. And I think that's been done. Like There was a film on oh, Jewish boxing. Oh, right, right. Yeah. But then he said, what about Moberg? And I said, absolutely. Because, again, I'm obsessed with fighting Nazis. And I thought that Mo combines this great... Um, the brawn and the brain like no one we've ever seen, but more importantly, really risked his life as a Jew, as an American, as someone who was prominent in the States, going behind enemy lines or near enemy lines to try to find out. He was a nuclear spy. It was something very dangerous that time because we were terrified. Did the Germans know and were they developing a nuclear bomb? So you started doing your research on Moberg, right? At which point did you say, oh, my God, i got to do this? Well, when Bill Levine said, yeah. I'll fund it. I mean, that had never happened to Is me before. Is that the Bill Levine from Phoenix? That's the Bill Levine oh from Phoenix. Oh, my God, he's a friend of mine. Well, he's a friend of mine, too. <laughs> That's fantastic. Very Let's do Jewish geography. And a great him. grant, he, a very generous grant, and he and his late wife's name to the Holocaust Museum. He, he's just one of the great. He's the Rosenwald of today. Oh, man, I, I love him. He took my daughter to the... Holocaust Museum event because he's a trustee and they still talk about it. I, I see him a lot. Actually, I think I sat at a table with her a couple of years ago. With my he, daughter? Yeah, because he's been taking me. Yes, because she's friends with one of his stepdaughters. Ex I can't believe what we're doing yes. here. This is yeah. great. We're doing a complete sidetrack to family talk. A little Jewish Jew geography. Yeah, geography. why not? No, I remember that. Oh, I will definitely send a link to this podcast to Bill. Um, and, you know, I... I your new film, it's like Godfather 2, you know, because you really hit it out of the park, forgive the metaphor. Actually, there with, is a with connection. Hank At one point, Marlon Brando wanted to make the dramatic film on... On Moberg? On Moberg, yeah, as, as did Dustin Hoffman and George Clooney. Because I'm thinking, if I'm your agent, I said, you reached the top with Hank Greenberg. It's like, this is it. This is the film on a Jewish baseball player. Now, all of a sudden, you get another Jewish ball player, and you're going to do another film. And I'm thinking, how, how are you going to outdo yourself? And from, it seems that it's the, the character, right? Well, first of all, I love Bergs. You know, I have the Greenberg, <laughs> the Goldberg, the Berg, and Berg again. No, but seriously, um, I think it's really important for me to make films about Jewish heroes because there was such on a personal level, death and destruction in my own family. Second of all, um, I think we both as a religion, as a people, we have wonderful characteristics, we have wonderful principles, and when they're followed 
you know, we really make a contribution to the world, and I want to make sure that those stories are known. Yeah, this is a difficult character to really absorb because he's got so many different parts to him, completely different. You know, his father didn't want him to play baseball, but it turns out he was really, really good at it in Princeton, and he followed his, his talent. But then he becomes a spy, and how do you, you know, and he's also like this brainiac. Well, if you think about it, who makes the best spies? And when Wild Bill Donovan developed the OSS, partly on the input from, of all people, Ian Fleming, who later developed James Bond, mm -hmm. they went for the people who were the safe crackers, the Ivy Leaguers in Hollywood. They went for Marlena Dietrich, John Ford, Julia Child. And then they went for a mohead, just sort of the perfect characteristics, brain and brawn. And you know what the most important thing is? Is the contribution of immigrants and children of immigrants. Mm -hmm. Mo was a linguist, but also grew up knowing languages. We have uh, someone in the film who was his radio operator, who was uh, a son of uh, uh, Italian immigrants. And you know, we talked today about not letting immigrants in, not realizing that some of them are so important to a lot of causes among the spying because we're very worried right now of North Africa. Right. Excuse me. We're, we're very worried right now of North Korea mm -hmm. having the bomb, of the Middle East having the bomb, of Russia. Who are the spies today? Aren't they probably the nationals who, who immigrated from those countries? Speaking of the nationals, which is the Washington, D.C. baseball team, I'm thinking now because I played lots of baseball growing up. And oh, what position? Now, you know what? I was in the outfield. I was oh, in the outfield. Once in a while I would pitch, but mostly outfield. And Moberg, in your film, you know, he started as a shortstop, became a catcher. But when you really think about baseball, it's an incredibly cerebral sport. You know, exactly. definitely even at the shortstop, but even more so as a catcher. And in a way, there's even a spying element to when you're a catcher because if the guy's on second base, he's trying to see your signs. And the coach is trying to see the signs that you're giving to the pitcher. So in an odd way. You have to be very secretive. Yeah. And another thing is uh, Hank Thomas, Walter Johnson, the great pitcher's grandson, says in the film, the catcher is the quarterback. You have to know what everyone's doing. You have, mm -hmm. Having a great memory, which Mo had, was a real asset because it was way before, you know, statistics and being able to look at uh, – and videos and figure out what the other teams were doing. It's remembering what the hitter had hit yesterday or the last time the team faced it. So he, he was a perfect fit in terms of that. And so you, how long did this one take you? Three and a half years, but that's because there was one funder. Mm -hmm. There was also a lot of OSS records we have to go through, and we had the real advantage that 30 years ago these two filmmakers, Neil Goldstein and Jerry Feldman had tried to make a film on Mo and had interviewed all these people, and we had access to purchase them and process them and use these interviews. And the nice coincidence is Jerry had been my cameraman in L.A. when I was making the film on Hank Greenberg. He Actually, he was with me when I was filming Walter Matha, which was the real treat in making the film. So these interviews allow me to use people I may not have interviewed 
but spied with Mo and played with Mo and have insights that no one else has. Also, you had a lot of fun stuff in the film. I mean, it's not just talking heads and, you know, it's the documentaries can get pretty boring if you're not careful. Well, it's a lot of film noir. The movies I love, the black and white movies about the war and being a spy, we were able to use that as well as fun things, you know, a lot of archival footage of young kids playing baseball to be a you know, uh, um, a metaphor of when Hank did. Um, did some... you see that film? I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, no it's go ahead. terrible habit. Must be my Sephardic gene. Did you see no, that? No, I have the same yeah. thing. Oh, I think... good. Good, good. Because uh, things just pop into my head. This film okay. you mentioned, film noir documentary on the First World War. I remember right. who made it. Who's just, that? Well, Morris? he just restored. No, um, I can't remember the filmmaker's name, but what it he was did. Haunting was, he just Viva. restored the footage. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring up World War One because while Bill Donovan, who FDR chose to be the head of the. Um, it's interesting you bring up World War One because while Bill Donovan, who was chosen by FDR to be the head of the OSS, had been a hero in, in World War One. That's why he was called Wild Bill, um, and certainly knew um, the effects of war. And he put together an incredible roster of spies, of I which Mo was his favorite. They Shall Not Grow Old by Peter Jackson. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. A, a, one of the most haunting films. I've ever well, seen. Well, you know, what didn't get answered in World War I was the reason that Germany and some of the other Axis po powers, sadly, you know, went to war in World War II. Now, when you see, I mean, you're a film nut like me. I'm sure you've seen, man, hundreds, not thousands. Are there films that have really marked you, like especially in the documentary genre, which is yours? Um, and, and what are they, and how did they mark you? Well, you know, it's interesting you say what films mark me. I, I'm under the belief that documentaries can move like features. I'm very proud of Barbara Bello, who's the editor for this f film, because I really f think that when you integrate testimonies, but with footage and photos and feature footage, um, they really it, do move they can like feel features. Like, that. like those three, those three uh, twins. Yeah, you know, my identical twins. Yeah, or I, I've, triplets it's, or it's really a good insight because in the recent years, I, I love documentaries, and you're right. One of the, so the, my favorite documentaries really feel like features. Right. And that's a good example of one. Yeah, because as we mentioned earlier, um, and maybe because I'm the child of a Holocaust survivor, but for me, films like Schindler's List, Casablanca, um, you mentioned it. Uh, are the, are the ones that most move me and, you know, that I remember. Yeah, and it's interesting. Ben-Hur, which is even earlier, which actually is also a Jewish story. Right, right, right. But you have these dark movies, and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to promote heroes here. And, you know, when I mentioned Schindler's List, um, in the past, Steven Spielberg has been wonderful through his foundation of giving grants to my films. But it turns out I had one funder here. And still he came through because um, Mo made two trips to Japan. And my editor's using what we call temp music. And we use some from uh, Memoirs of a Geisha. And through going to the Doug Wick, who's the producer of that, and Amblin, uh, Stevens' company, we were able to use that music for free. So that, that was a great contribution. Because, you know, it's very expensive to use a lot of these feature 
um, scenes from feature footage. You know, I had an interesting conversation the other day with a fellow film nut at the office because, you know, there was the one on the singer from Queen. What's his name? Armando. What's his name? Freddie Mercury. But have you seen Rocket Man yet? Unbelievable. And I saw Rocket Man the other night. And this friend of mine that I was talking to is madly in love with Olivia Newton-John. And I and I asked him. I said, Well, maybe they can do one on her. And he said, She didn't have enough drama. There was not enough darkness. And it was an interesting point that one of the reasons the Freddie Mercury movie and the um, you know Elton John movies were so successful is because there was so much darkness in their lives, right? And yet, you're able to make these dramatic films without the darkness. Well, but there is a parallel, at least to Rocket Band. I don't remember so much about Mercury and his parents, but to have a father that never sees you play as a young boy in high school in Princeton... 15 years in the major leagues. I, I, that, to me, yeah, is pretty sad was, and but, judgmental. But, yeah, but, you know, it's like, you know, the, he, it didn't, he didn't unravel like Elton John did. He didn't get into drugs. He didn't become an alcoholic. It was kind of amazing. No, he, he risked his life he really did. To, to restore, you know, the world to democracy and to def- defeat fascism. So three and a half years, give me the one or two moments where it got toughest for you. The toughest challenge. Did you have any doubts as you're creating the film, saying, I'm not sure if this is going to work, uh, the narrative arc, the tension, conflict? Share, share some of the inside baseball uh, of making a film. Well, in general, it was very helpful. There have been two books, second, the first, especially the second book by Nicholas Davidoff. Right. So a lot of research had been done in that, in that respect. Second of all, I could afford to have a very good researcher go through the declassified OSS documents. But I I'll, will share three stories that have been coming up recently for me to show how you sort of finish a film. So one was I always wanted to have something that had been a baseball player, a catcher, and I had tried for Joe Torrey, and it didn't work. Um, so then I realized, oh, my gosh, Brad Osmos, who nearby is the manager of the Angels, I should ask him because he's Jewish. He went to an Ivy League school. He went to Dartmouth, and he was a catcher. And sure enough, he was willing to be interviewed and really gave some very good insights um, to what you know what kind of talents a catcher has. Of course, it, it also helped that my uh, funder had been a part owner of the Angels at one point, and someone involved in the team uh, also used to work with him. So that they came for a great introduction. Then the second thing is, I knew that wasn't Mo's only story was trying to figure out if Heisenberg, the German scientist who had remained... Don't say Heisenberg, because right. it's uh, uh, Breaking Bad. And I'm completely um, obsessed with I also... Just the, kidding. Okay. The great story about Mo, the courageous story, was him going to Zurich intending to possibly assassinate Heisenberg if he found out that Heisenberg knew about how to develop the nuclear bomb. But Mo, before that, had done a lot in Italy trying to get Italian scientists out of the hands of Germans once Italy fell. But I really didn't have the story. Luckily, talk about fate, preparedness. I was at a wedding last summer of my cousin's daughter, and I started talking to the family friend. And I said, Art, you know, I want very much, um, I, I'm making a film on Mo Berg. And he says, Mo Berg, my friend, Paul 
Ferry's father was Antonio, who Mo got out of Italy. So And he was still alive. The son was still alive. I had a great interview with him in Florida. You telling gotta be lucky. Me, yeah. Well, it's I, I believe in fate. So telling me, you know, how is how Mo tracked him down. Of course his fellow spies also talked about it and I had that story. Then I didn't quite have the end of the film. And I live in Washington. I'm very political. And one thing I always like to do is have people that are involved in politics or government life in Washington in my movies. So with Hank Greenberg's story, it was very easy because Sandra and Carl Levin, congressmen and senators, loved Hank Greenberg growing up. Uh, When it came to Molly Goldberg, I went to the French embassy. There was Justice Ginsburg, also known as RBG. Another Berg. Right. And actually, I tried to make a film about her and the other two female um, Supreme Court justices that I wanted to call the Supremes, but it didn't work out. But in any event, when I started talking to Justice Ginsburg, I said, I'm making a film of Molly Goldberg. She said, I love her watch uh, growing up. So sure enough. That was good. I interviewed her. Uh, when it came to Rosenwald, it was easy be- oh, yeah. because John Lewis had gone to a Rosenwald school right. and Danny Davis was a congressman from Chicago. So I was thinking, what am I going to do with Moberg? Well, it turns out that I go to many events and there Dr. Susan Blumenthal is there who is married to Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts. And when talking with them, Ed said, well, I love you know, you know how much I love the Red Sox, and Moberg's one of my heroes. So it was perfect. The only thing, it was like one of, it was my last interview, and he had just introduced um, the the new Green Deal. So it was a little hard finally getting him, you know, to sit down and talk. But luckily, I did because I think he gives us a great ending to the film. So, but so much of his life must be like classified, you know. Well, it's the it's the combination of his life being classified, but a lot of it is declassified. But Mo doesn't speak much in the film. Mm-hmm. We couldn't find footage of that, and Mo isn't in a lot of pictures. So you have you hear a lot of stories about him, and you know we sort of people say, well, why didn't you have more photos? And I said, I assure you, if I had more photos, I would have used them. So you. You know, when it comes to OSS training, you show footage of how people train from these dramatic movies, and you're, I'm hoping as a viewer, you suspend belief thinking this how, is how Mo lived. What's been the reaction so far to the film? I mean, the LA Times did an incredible review. Yeah. Very good today. reviews, but people walking out. You know, my surprise audience are women. Maybe not so surprised. They, they really love the movie. Uh, I don't know if I should brag too much, but the one word I'm hearing a lot is brilliant, uh, which actually well, sort of fits because Mo was brilliant. So I like that they call the film brilliant. Well, but you more, know, um, the, the thing I think about a lot is, you know, why is it that I've had this passion for baseball for so long? And I grew up with the uh, the Montreal Expos. It was a huge part of my life. And I remember just, you know, my mother would make a lunch, my brother and I, you know, we'd take a bus ticket and get in little bleachers for a dollar and have six hours worth of entertainment. And I remember the incredible feeling of watching a baseball field. So, but I grew up, all the other sports look, had nothing to do with any other sport I had ever seen in my life. And there was a beauty, an aesthetic beauty to baseball that I read about years later. 
with Balfour, that famous book, and then George Will, who I'm right. sure you must know. In I DC. tried to get him for the film, but he was very busy. He's a huge lover traveling. of baseball. Right. And Charles Crowdhammer. Also, who sadly passed away before I could interview him. Yeah, so I'm wondering if over the years you've developed a passion. Definitely, for the game. I still follow very much. You go to games. I go to games, and I and um, Hank Greenberg film was dedicated, among other things, to the return of baseball to Washington. I was very active in that. I just think it's a wonderful sp sport there's to a, watch, participate. Kind of, there's a dignity. And follow. You know, I'd go with friends of mine, and there's kind of the flow of the game enables all kinds of interesting conversations with whoever you're going with. And it's just unlike any other sport. I mean, you know, I'm a basketball nut now, but there's, I, I, you can't spend a minute really having any interesting conversations in basketball because it's relentless, whereas baseball has just a beautiful flow interrupted by sharp, sharp moments of intensity. I agree. Yeah. I tease my brother because he seemed to have abandoned uh, following baseball for hockey. But in any event, I couldn't agree more. Well, the other thing is that there's really no place in the world, maybe except for Cuba and some of the countries, you know, in Central America, um, that um, have it as a national sport. National well, Japan pastime. now also. Japan, correct. And some of them are coming to play here. And even, of course, Israel, of course. Uh, they like to do everything America does. Yeah, but I think Israel just, they want the faster game of basketball. I'm not sure baseball will ever really develop a big following when, in Israel. When was your last trip to Israel? It's um, a good question. Was it before? It was for Rosen. I think about three and a half years ago. But I'm hoping to go this fall and do a retrospective of my films at the Diaspora Museum, who actually I had some drawings um, to do with their humor show. So. so tell me about your dream before I let you go, Aviva. Tell me, uh, is there something in your mind, a dream, your next project that you would love to do? Share your dreams with us. Okay, well, I'm already working on a new project, which is the insidious use of Native American imagery and mascotting especially the Washington football team, whose name I can't even say mm -hmm. because I think it's offensive. And it makes it me even sorrier that it's owned by a Jewish man. So a documentary. Yeah, I'm working on that with a Native American director. We're co-directing, co-producing. So I'm very excited about that. Do you find it's difficult after you finish a project to not work on one? Like, did you, did you jump on one right away or do you like to take a break? I just, there's no breaks in my life. No breaks. And, you know, also taking a film out, you know, we're sitting here in L.A. because the film is opening uh, in L.A. tomorrow. And I've just been with my film two weeks ago in Washington and then New York and Philadelphia. It's like a political campaign. The film is slowly going all around the country. I want people to be, I love movies. I love the theater experience and being in there. So um, people can look up uh spy behind home plate to see where the film is. But I will talk about another film I'm trying to do. Um, I want to do a short, uh, and maybe because it's in time for 2020, you know, 100 years since the women got the vote. And it's about the, more with my urban planning background, architectural background. When they developed the Capitol as a building, they never made bathrooms for women and both the Senate and the House side, because they always thought it would only be men. It was only in more recent years, in the 60s, 
led by Barbara Mikulski, did they fight to get more female bathrooms? And this has also become an issue on the House side because so many more women are in the Congress. So I want to make a funny short called Pissed Off. Mm. Just in time for the 2020 election, and who knows, maybe in time for a female president. Sounds like a good cover story in the Jewish Journal. Uh-huh. So, and I'm also fascinated by the issue of uh, the Indian. Native yeah, American, yeah. There's a, a lot of parallels. There was a pure genocide when we came, when the white people came to this country. It's the silent genocide. The silent one, especially here in California. Would love I to mean, do the percentages. a big story on that one day. Yeah. Because we just don't hear too much about it. Right. Um, and then the other, because I say I'm politically involved in Washington, what I dedicate all my films to is the fact of the matter is I live in a city where we have no vote in Congress, that we should have statehood and two senators and a congressperson, so I dedicate to that. And I'm also involved in gun reform. I've hosted several parties for the Parkland kids Mm -hmm. or some of the parents who have lost their kids, Mm -hmm. and that's a real important issue to me, but also immigration reform. Well, in a way, you're an immigrant because you're from Canada. I am uh, an immigrant. You know, I'm definitely an immigrant, although American at birth because my father was in the U.S. Army. And we really have to do something, especially for the dreamers. I, tell, I remember my first day in Canada. I really do, just like yesterday, yeah. September 3rd, 1964. I was a little kid, and I went from, you know, uh, California weather in Casablanca to the North Pole mm-hmm. in Montreal. And so you're was, actually from Casablanca. I am. So I was oh born. my God, David! I was, can't wait. It's my goal. A, that's the trip I want to still make this year to to go. Yeah, let me know. I'll I'll connect you. Bogey and uh, <laughs> yeah, he's not Bacall there. steps. <laughs> Amazing film. No, but really, there was a, a kind of a combination of excitement and a little bit of trauma because all of a sudden, you know, you see winter. I don't know what winter is, and then it's the classic immigrant experience where I go into a class. I don't know the language. And then a teacher takes you under her wing and helps you learn the language. And then you slowly, it's the immigrant experience. Well, I, I remember kids making fun of my English. They made fun of my R's. They made fun of my name. And it's the, kind of the hardships that go on. My mother taking four buses to work to make 50 bucks a week in the middle of snowstorms. All that stuff, all that immigrant stuff, we, I lived through it. And it's sort but of. But I my, think it creates our character of having more empathy in the world and certainly being great of what you've done here uh, with the newspaper and the podcast and in your life and for me my artwork and film and also encompassing you know other communities I have friends especially for years I did work human rights work in Latin America you just have to see the world a different way when you're an immigrant also I'm got an incredible sense of gratitude because as I get older you know, I go back to Morocco and I see that, watch out, you can get in trouble for what's accepted in America. You don't have that freedom of speech and these things that we take for granted here. So as I got to know the world better, my gratitude for the freedoms that, that we have here just expanded. So on that note of gratitude, I want to thank you, Aviva. I'm so proud of you, so proud of everything <laughs> you've done. And the spy behind home plate is your latest film on Moberg, and it starts June 7th, Lamely Royal, West L.A., Town Center 5, Encino, and it's gonna, going across the country now, right? Right. It's San Francisco. Yeah, we're, it's a, a slow rollout, as we say. 
got it, the spy behind home plate. And please come back when you have your next film on the uh, Insidious Native, Native use Americans. of Native imagery. Right. Yes, yes, and definitely for Pissed Off. Right. Just for that title alone. I know. Yeah. I'm very happy with that title. All right. God Not bless. happy with what it's talking about, but happy with the title. And thank you so much, David, for all you do. Oh, it's great to have you. Don't forget, I'm staying in your place next time I'm in D.C. 